Hi, and welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Katie Horowitz about her book, Drag, Interperformance, and the Trouble with Queerness, which was published by Routledge in 2019. Drag, Interperformance, and the Trouble with Queerness is a comparative ethnography of drag king and drag queen performances in Cleveland, Ohio. It uses the concept of interperformance as a framework for identity formation and coalition building that provides strategies for repairing long-standing rifts in the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender LGBT community. Dr. Horowitz is Assistant Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at Davidson College. Katie Horowitz, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Hi, Isabel. Thanks for having me. How are you? Where are you? Uh, I am good. I am currently at my home in Davidson, North Carolina, and uh, isolating as I think we all hopefully are at the moment. I believe we're in week six now. So uh, hello out there, all my fellow uh, quarantinis. Yes. So before we discuss uh, drag interperformance and the trouble with queerness, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to the subject of your book? Sure. So um, I sort of fell into the study of drag. It was not uh, what I had intended to do, uh, and it turned out to be a very happy accident. Um, my scholarly background is extremely interdisciplinary. I went to Wesleyan as an undergrad and I majored in French and dance. And then for my MA PhD, I went to UC Berkeley um, in the rhetoric program, which is an interdisciplinary humanities program. And one of the things that drew me to that program was the ability to study just about any cultural object that I wanted to, um, and to do so from a mixed methods perspective. Um, I'd actually intended at the beginning of my grad school career to be a British historian. I had taken this class called The Body and the State and was really interested in histories of the body. Um, And it was taught by a British historian. So I thought, that's what I'm going to do too. Um, And during grad school, my great passion outside of class was going to drag shows uh, with my friends, Radhika and Jonathan. And they they would come to shows with me and then we would all sit in the car afterwards and talk and talk and talk for hours about these shows. And eventually Radhika, who um, has turned out to be a British historian, Uh, said to me one day, you know, I've noticed that you don't actually seem very interested in British history. You don't come to any of the British history working group meetings. You didn't go to the conference this year, but you do seem to be really interested in drag and gender. So why don't you do that instead? And like a light bulb, uh, my trajectory completely changed And I focused in on gender and sexuality studies, which had always been an interest of mine, but one that I didn't realize could be academic. Um, And I think the same is true of drag. It never occurred to me that I could take this concept and this uh, genre of performance that was so intriguing to me and think about it in a way that applied what I was learning in graduate school. That is fascinating. Uh, um, drag has that effect on some people. I know it did, it had uh, on me as well. If it's okay with you, I would like to start our discussion of the book by defining some of the concepts and terminology that you use here. Um, first, I know this might sound obvious to some folks, but it definitely isn't. Can we define drag, right? Because there's a lot of people who still think about drag as a cisgender man, most often a gay man, performing femininity on stage. But as you show here in your book, uh, there are many other ways of doing drag. Can you explain that to anybody who might not be familiar with uh, drag's diversity? 
Absolutely. So I think in the simplest terms, drag is a performance practice that takes stereotypes of gender and reperforms them on bodies from which you're not expecting to see those gendered traits. Um, Drag has become incredibly diverse in the last 20, 30 years. And the two genres that I focus on in my book are drag queen performances, um, which I think most people are familiar with um, in 2020, uh, due in no small part to the influence of RuPaul's Drag Race, right? Uh, Drag queens have become an important part, not just of gay culture, but I think uh, very visible in street culture too. Um, I'm also focusing in this book on drag kings. And traditionally, um, when we think of a drag queen, we think of, as you said, a cisgender man, generally a gay cisgender man performing on stage as a woman, um, and a drag king um, as sort of its counterpart Um, a cisgender woman, usually a queer woman, um, performing masculinity on stage um, dressed as a man. Um, However, these are sort of not hard and fast definitions. So um, in addition to drag kings and drag queens, we have many other kinds of performance that eschew the gender binary altogether. I'm thinking of things like gender fuck performance. I hope it's okay that I just said fuck on this uh, podcast. Um, And other sorts of of gender fluid performance. Um, And I also would add that uh, drag isn't limited to cis folks by any stretch of the imagine. So the performers that I worked certainly did include cis men who performed as women and cis women who performed as men, but it also included cis women who performed as women, cis men who performed as men, trans women who performed as women, trans men who performed as men. Um, So there's a great deal of diversity in the genders of drag performers themselves. Well, this brings uh, an important question that I get a lot and I know is something I'm dealing with. So could you tell us about uh, something that you mentioned, the ubiquitous pronoun problem that anyone who wants to investigate drag has to face? Right? How do we deal with pronouns? Sure. So I think that the general consensus among performers is that when they are in drag, the best way to address them is with the pronouns that attach to the character they're playing. So for example, um, if a cis man is performing as a woman, is in drag as a drag queen, then you would use she, her pronouns. Um, And conversely, if a drag king is performing, um, you would use he, him pronouns. Um, Regardless of the gender identity of the performer, him, her, their self, right? The, the appropriate pronoun to use is the one that corresponds to the identity of their drag persona. Um, where this gets difficult for me as someone who's writing about drag is that sometimes it wasn't always clear to me whether I was talking to the drag persona or the person within that drag persona, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And can you tell us about the concept of interperformance? Was that your starting point when you began the project or was it something that, you know, you came up as a result of your research? So I think I started to think about this concept of interperformance in the very early stages of my research. Um, So in fact, I wrote about some of these ideas in the prospectus proposing um, this research. Uh, This book was originally my dissertation and it's now in a substantially revised form of the book. Um, But interperformance is the notion that relations give rise to identities And the reason that I started thinking about this concept 
um, is that I wanted to disrupt some binary thinking that I saw happening in both of the fields in which I'd sort of centrally locate myself, and that's performance studies and gender and sexuality studies. Um, And so within performance studies, the binary thinking that I had noticed was with respect to the distinction between performance and performativity. Um, And typically when we think about performance, we think about something that's theatrical that happens on a stage. Whereas performativity refers to um, the production of identities through the performance of everyday life. Um, And the reason I found this problematic was because it seemed to assume that there's always a hard and fast distinction between performances that happen on stage and performances that happen in everyday life. Um, And what I found with a lot of the performers that I worked with while doing this research on drag is that that's not necessarily the case. For many of them, they figured out what their identity was through the process of performing in drag. So it was very common, for example, for drag kings to start performing as drag while identifying as a cis woman, and then eventually um, determine that they were trans men or that they were trans masculine or non-binary after having had the experience of performing on stage as a man. Um, The other kind of binary thinking that I wanted to challenge within gender and sexuality studies is the debate around whether sexuality is fluid or whether it's something that we're born with. And there's been a lot of research on this. People have approached it in many different ways. Um, But ultimately, I wanted to handle the complexity and um, acknowledge that Gender and sexuality are fluid, they can change, and yet for most of us, the way we think about our own gender remains relatively constant most of the time, which is to say that for most of us, we're not changing our gender identity on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. So and the final part uh, of the the your uh, title that I wanted uh, you to comment on is what is, you know, the trouble with queerness? Why is the concept of queer problematic? And what do you think it erases? And uh, another thing that you mentioned, what are the limits of coalition that you're discussing here? Mm. Um, Thanks for asking that. So uh, I use the term trouble here Um, as sort of an homage to Judith Butler, to Michael Warner, to Donna Haraway, um, these queer theorists who have all included the word trouble um, in various books of theirs. And so I'm thinking of trouble both in terms of the verb, right, to trouble something, um, but also in the sense of something that's troubling or troublesome. And I find that queerness is both troubling, troublesome, and something that should be troubled because it is an umbrella term that is so vast and expansive, and yet somewhat paradoxically, it contains all of these exclusionary internal hierarchies. Um, So it's become something of a truism within queer studies, for example, that queer theory is actually gay male theory cloaked in more inclusive language. Um, And so Uh, Beyond that, we also have sort of um, uh, debates within the field about who counts as queer, right? So do asexual people count as queer? Um, Do uh, intersex folks count as queer? Um, There are plenty of TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, for instance, who want to exclude transgender from the category of queer. Um, And so something that I was thinking about um, before I even got started with doing the research on this book was the question of why do we have to assume that all queer identities have anything in common in the first place? Um, Why should it be that gay men necessarily have anything in common with lesbians, um, with 
asexual folks, with intersex folks. Um, and I think that the biggest takeaway that I hope people have from my book um, is that our best political chances come um, when we build coalitions, not around identities, right? Because identities are always shifting. They're always frictional. They're always potentially in conflict with one another. But rather when we create solidarities based on places, um, on communities, uh, on the things that we do have in common that we share like space rather than um, the sort of slipperier ground of identity. Um, and so I propose toward the end of the book this concept of interperformative solidarities um, and to maybe get a little bit deeper into the question of what the, what that term means. Um, when I'm thinking about interperformance, um, what I'm really proposing is that um, our identities are developed out of the relations that our bodies have with other bodies, with different environments, with different ideas. Um, and so as our bodies move in and out of and between relationships with those other bodies, environments, ideas, each relationship produces a new meaning related to our identity. So for me, when I started doing this research and started going to Bounce uh, Union Station, the gay bar in Cleveland where I did my research, uh, I identified as a straight cisgender woman. Um, I was married to a man. Um, I was involved in all sorts of relations that gave rise to this idea of heterosexuality. This was before gay marriage was legal. So the fact that I was married gave rise to this sense of heterosexuality. Um, I had never had um, a romantic or sexual relationship with um, anyone who wasn't a cisgender straight man. And all of these things sort of shaped the notion that I was heterosexual. But as I started spending more time at the bar and the relationships that came to encompass my body more frequently became things like the space of the gay bar, interacting with more queer and trans people on a regular basis. Um, thinking about drag and watching drag, reading more queer theory and talking about queer theory, um, that started to give rise to a, meeting, a meaning that meant something more like queer. Um, and by the time I finished this book, I was no longer in a cisgender heterosexual marriage. Um, I've been identifying as queer for five or six years now. Um, and have been pursuing queer, um, romantic, sexual, and social relationships since then. Um, and so uh, I bring this into the concept of solidarities because I think that even though our identities are subject to change, can be subject to change frequently whenever they move into a new relationship with another body or another space, um, if we are frequently finding our body and other people's bodies in the same space, that can be an excellent basis for coalition, right? And so what we can prioritize is the good of the space, um, the good of protecting the bodies that frequent that space, rather than basing our concept of the good and of community on what do I have in common with this person in terms of our shared identities? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that uh, uh, brings me the the um, a concept here, idea that you mentioned the politics of those performances, right? And the real life effects that they can produce. Um, uh, you You actually say here, and I'm quoting you, that watching and doing drag could be tactics better suited to the project of negotiating, claiming, and articulating an ind individual or collective queer identity than, say, campaigning for gay-friendly candidates and legislation. I agree with you, but tell us uh, why you think that. Mm. So I think that politics can incorporate a whole lot of different strategies. Um, and what's good for 
one sort of political aim may not be good for another sort of political aim. Um, And if your aim is to be in community with people who, um, who share a certain relationship to gender um, or a certain relationship to sexuality. And if you want to figure out what your relationship to gender and sexuality is, um, then I think you're likelier to find that out by participating in things like going to a gay bar and watching a drag show um, and doing things that will challenge your sense of yourself um, and challenge the permanence of your identity um, more so than, I don't know, voting for Pete Buttigieg, for example. You know, I think that um, uh, politics in the sense of electoral politics certainly has a role for those of us in the queer community, um, although we may debate the extent to which um, electoral politics actually affect change for the majority of non-white, non-cisgender, non-wealthy queer people. Um, But in terms of a politic of queerness that is rooted in finding community, um, I think that drag is very well suited toward that aim. Mm -hmm. And um, so there aren't many studies that look at both uh, queening and kinging, and you acknowledge that that is because these are two completely different genres. And we'll talk more about genres in a minute, but can you tell us uh, the basic parallels and the fundamental differences between queening and kinging? Sure. So, you know, I think at the most basic level, um, kings are generally performing as men or masculine personas, and queens are generally performing as women or feminine personas. Um, You know, the other similarities they have are that generally performances consist of lip syncing to a song. Um, And I think also generally the vast majority of drag performers, kings, queens, genderfuck artists, etc., share some relationship to LGBTQ identity. Um, and did or do identify as queer, trans, gay, lesbian, bisexual. Um, But in terms of their differences, something that I noticed pretty quickly in my field research was that drag queens seem to perform a femininity that is relatively stable, whereas drag kings perform a whole lot of different kinds of masculinities that are more experimental um, and that tend to highlight and really embrace uh, more marginalized masculinities, masculinities of color, um, disabled and queer masculinities, um, old masculinities, um, and that the drag king performers seemed to feel more at liberty to experiment with a whole lot of different kinds of masculinity in their performance. Um, whereas the queens seemed to perform a relatively stable version of femininity um, that is sort of its own kind of femininity, uh, a femininity that does not map neatly onto the kinds of femininities that we see in our day-to-day life, um, but that rather is more focused around celebrity and wealth and um, sort of being untouchable in that way. What was the advantage that you found then in studying the two together? So I went about this project thinking about drag as a microcosm of some of those tensions that I was noticing within the larger queer community uh, that I mentioned earlier, right? These uh, debates about who counts as queer according to whom and for what ends, um, who belongs in the queer community and who should be excluded from it, whose voices are the loudest and get the most airtime within the queer community. Um, And so by looking 
at this comparison of drag kings and drag queens, I was really hoping to focus in on one tension in particular, um, and that's the tension uh, between gay men and lesbians. Um, And I think Jane Ward has done some really interesting work thinking about um, that tension and about the extent to which um, gay men are thinking that uh, lesbians have come to dominate queer theory, um, but also the extent to which um, that perception reflects reality um, or reflects um, a sense that um, in this sort of rapidly changing queer world in which we're moving more and more toward fluidity and further and further away from the sense that our sexual identities are stable and unchanging. Um, The identity of cis gay male is feeling under threat to a lot of white gay men in particular. Mm-hmm. So uh, w- I was very intrigued uh, by the way you, you constructed this and you, talking about generic constructions, right? Uh, talking about this in terms of, of, of um, genres, because, you know, I went to film school, so that uh, was really appealing to me. But you articulated here the difference between a poetics of earnestness and a poetics of camp to define drag as a genre. Could you tell us a bit more about these types of poetics and their generic (laughs) conventions and how does that play out in queening and kinging? Mm. So I think that camp is probably quite familiar to a lot of listeners who have any degree of familiarity familiarity with drag queen performance. Um, And so I am taking my definition of camp from David Halperin's book, How to Be Gay. And he is thinking about camp as a sort of self-lacerating irony that is opposed to the sincerity and the high seriousness of heterosexual culture. Um, And I think that that is a really beautiful way of defining the function of camp within drag right? That nothing is so sacred that uh, it has to be taken seriously all the time. Um, And I think this sort of surreality that comes out of camp culture, right? The exaggeratedness, the garishness um, of the femininity that's performed by drag queens um, is really uh, telling of something about gay male culture as a genre, right? Gay male culture um, and not all gay, to, I'm taking this from Halperin too, not all gay men um, participate in what we might recognize as gay male culture um, and not all people who participate in gay male culture necessarily identify as gay men. Um, but I think that that, um, that camp aesthetic Right. And that appeal toward the over the top, toward celebrity, um, toward um, this abstracted sense of wealth and untouchability um, tells us something about um, conflicts within gay male culture that have led to further debates about um, racism within gay male culture and about classism within gay male culture. Um, And then in thinking about this poetics of earnestness, um, I think if there's anything that ties together much of drag king performance, um, it's the idea that um, as varied as the masculinities and genders are that get performed, the key is to perform them with as much uh, sincerity, with as much... um, realism and authenticity as possible. Um, and in a way that sort of, uh, is relatable to a masculinity that you can identify off stage as well. Um, and because I saw more experimentation with different 
kinds of masculinity um, with different kinds of racialized and classed and sexualized masculinity um, within drag king performances. I see that as speaking something about um, the priorities of something we might call lesbian culture, um, a culture that is perhaps more in tune to fluidity um, and more in tune to um, intersectional ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. So uh, in your chapter about drag kings, you focus more on on the performances uh, of kinging but you also discussed there uh, drag queens who were assigned a female sex at birth. Um, there, are ver- uh, there are so many terms for it, right? Uh, bio queens or faux queens or biofems. But uh, tell us um, about those experiences. What did you learn by observing uh, those performances? So the bio queens or faux queens, um, bio queens, uh, biofems, I'm sorry, was the term that was used by the performers that I worked with in Cleveland, um, are cisgender women, um, who perform as women, um, in a way that's similar to drag queen performance, but that I think aligns more aesthetically, um, and in terms of performance priorities with drag kings, which is why um, the biofems were performing alongside um, drag kings rather than performing alongside drag queens. Um, The biofems that I interviewed for this book saw themselves as performing feminine stereotypes on stage. Um, And those stereotypes were ones that uh, perhaps they identified with in their lives offstage, um, but that they really wanted to amplify. Amplification was a word that came up a lot um, in performing them on stage, um, so much so that they would become absurd. Um, And the biofems fit into the space of drag kinging I think, again, because of this idea of earnestness, right? So um, whereas, as I've said, the drag queens are appealing to this version of femininity that is beyond femininity, um, that is about fame and wealth um, and being sort of above everyday femininity as it's embodied by many cisgender women, um, the kinds of femininity that I would see performed on stage with the kings um, were more imperfect femininities. So, for example, um, one of the performers uh, got up on stage once and announced, I have to pee, so let's make this fast. Um, and then launched into this very sexy striptease um, to Madonna's human nature. Um, And I think that juxtaposition, right, of the the sort of beautiful, uh, sexy stripper with uh, the woman who really just has to pee and cannot wait to get out of this extremely tight teddy um, sort of uh, captures the spirit of not just biofem performance, but also drag king performance, right? Drawing on these tensions um, and surfacing these tensions in ways that make them really visible to the audience rather than trying to perfect and conceal the seams in the way that drag queen performance tends to do. Yes. So uh, your third chapter uh, was, uh, although I I enjoyed reading the whole book, the third chapter was particularly appealing because I'm a historian. So you provide here a genealogy of drag that you're tracing back all the way to the 19th century. As you uh, well note here, uh, drag does not have a systematic documented history. So tell us, how did you piece that chapter together? How was the research process? And 
What were the sources that uh, allowed you to write that chapter? So that chapter came out of a whole lot of scavenging. Um, I went through, I believe, five different uh, archives and looked for anything that I could find about drag queens or drag kings. Um, And by sourcing photographs, um, posters from drag performances of yore, um, uh, magazines. Uh, There were a number of 1970s cross-dressing magazines that focused in part on drag queens. Um, uh, Archival films. From all of that, I was able to piece together um, some themes that I noticed within kinging and queening, respectively. Tell us uh, uh, about your conclusions for that chapter. I'm, I was particularly interested in your discussion of differences in movement vocabularies or gestural repertoire in the two different uh, genres. So um, I would summarize the differences in the gestural histories of queens versus kings um, as follows. I think for queens, we can see some of the same exact gestures being made by queens in totally different geographical contexts across time. Um, So going as far back as the late 1800s, I found photographs of drag queens posing in ways identical to those that I saw performed by the drag queens that I interviewed and researched for this project. For Kings, on the other hand, um, there it was a much thinner archive. Um, and I think that's partly to do with sexism, um, right? The archive for things that are associated with cis men, whether they're gay or not, is going to be thicker than the archive associated with cis women. Um, But I think it's also because, um, you know, drag queening has a more robust popular history um, and has been documented by uh, not only its participants, but also its fans. Um, So what I did notice with drag kings from what materials have been historically preserved um, is that it's not the gestures that stay the same. Um, but rather the appeal to um, subordinate and marginalized forms of masculinity. So we can see, looking back over time, that um, there is a long history of drag kings performing as, for example, um, sort of working class gentlemen. Um, We have a history, too, of drag kings um, posing and performing um, as uh, military servicemen, for example. Um, And so that distinction between the preservation of gesture for queens and the preservation of Certain a certain relationship to masculinity in kings. Um, I think that's significant because what it shows us is that um, the performance of um, queening has been quite consistent over time and over geography, um, whereas the aesthetic performance of drag kinging um, has shifted with the times. So the kinds of character that you see um, over time shifts, but what doesn't shift uh, with drag kings is the way that they have prioritized um, the kinds of men who are usually on the outskirts of acceptable masculinity. Yeah, I, I love what that uh, tells us about, you know, how we understand, how we think, how I idealize even masculinity and femininity 
uh, you know, across time. Uh, that that's uh, I found that chapter really interesting. So, but your fourth chapter talks about uh, this post-gay geographies, the death of the gay bar, and the context of the the death or the closing of the space that she where you were doing your your field work. Tell us about um, that process and the role of gentrification in 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 it. And I was um, particularly interesting in what you say here about the cost of integration. And by that, what I mean is what happens when straight people start being welcomed and to a certain extent even desired in these queer spaces. Mm-hmm. So I think that chapter is probably the closest to my heart and felt the most personal to write um, and was in some senses the hardest to write because it it felt like something that uh, I lived as opposed to simply observing. Um, so in that fourth chapter, I talk about um, the dissolution of the bar um, where I did my research. Um, and, you know, that that phrase that you're flagging, Isabel, the, the cost of integration um, is ultimately something that led to, in my opinion, led to the demise of this bar. Um, so what happened was that uh, the bar where both kings and queens had been performing for over a decade um, eventually changed hands and the new management um, placed more of a premium on the work of the drag queens than on the drag kings. Um, and I think the reason they did that is that the queens were more of a moneymaker. Um, you know, their shows were on Fridays and Saturdays, whereas drag king shows were on Wednesdays. Um, So necessarily a Wednesday show is going to draw a smaller crowd than a Friday or Saturday show. Um, But two, uh, drag queens are more popular than drag kings. Um, And I think that's reflected in the fact that you'd probably be hard pressed to find a U.S. American today who has never heard the term drag queen. Um, But even I would dare say most people who are very familiar with drag queens may not have heard of drag kings. Um, And so the new management was really focused on, you know, building up the clientele. um, And that meant building up a straight clientele rather than just focusing on what the bar had done so well for so many years, which was to create an inclusive space for LGBTQ people in the greater Cleveland area, um, folks of different races and classes um, and genders and sexualities all found a home in the space of that bar. Um, But eventually the area in which it was located uh, became gentrified. And in particular, there was a block right near it Um, that was bought up and all of the um, gay sex workers were evicted from it. Um, The bathhouse was closed. um, And in its place, this block that had been a vibrant locale for gay culture in Cleveland, um, almost overnight became a place that was made up of a juice bar and a yoga studio and a bicycle shop. Um, and became really appealing to young, white, urban, professional, heterosexual families. Um, And so not unreasonably, the new management of the bar wanted to appeal to the folks who are now living in the area. And what that meant, unfortunately, um, was that it had to become more palatable to them. Um, And so Eventually, this led to the drag kings leaving the bar because they felt unsupported um, because the bar was prioritizing um, drag queen performances um, and implementing policies like a cover charge for the king show that made it difficult for their largely working class young audience to um, 
continue patronizing the bar. Um, And so I think that ultimately the cost of integration for this bar in particular, um, but I think that this likely holds true for a lot of gay bars across the country, is that in trying to appeal to straight people, um, it loses the things that make it uniquely queer and that make it a home um, and a safe space for queer people um, without creating anything that distinguishes it from every other bar in the area, right? So if you're not a gay bar anymore, um, you don't really stand out a whole lot along among all the other bars that are already um, existing. Um, and so what ends up happening is that the folks who used to call that gay bar home feel pushed out and the new people who it's attracting, it's trying to attract, um, don't find it particularly special vis-a-vis all their other options. Mm-hmm. Why did you see this process as a failure of solidarity? And how do you think we can use interperformance to build these solid solidarity and coalitions? Uh, this would be a good example to talk about that. Yeah. So, um, in interviewing some of the performers after the bar had closed, uh, the story, the, the common narrative that uh, emerged was that the Kings and the Biofems who performed together felt that um, the drag queens were not supporting them, um, that they had sort of been abandoned by. Um, their fellow performers at the bar who they'd known for many, many years um, and spent time in dressing dressing rooms with and developed friendships with. Um, And it felt like a betrayal um, for them when they left um, and when the queens continued um, to perform at this bar that they'd been pushed out of. as if nothing had changed, um, you know, and I want to be clear that, you know, this, I'm not saying this to um, cast the Queens in a negative light. I mean, I think that, um, you know, people need to make a living and, um, you know, this was a source of income for a lot of performers that was really important to them. Um but uh, the feeling was one of, of betrayal um, on the part of many of the kings and, and biofems. Um, and so ultimately, the bar was lost, right? No one's performing there anymore because it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I think that some of the tensions that arose between the kings and the queens that led up to this sense of betrayal were things like um, a number of queens misgendering um, king performers uh, publicly um, and things like, you know, the queens not um, supporting performances by the kings, right? Not, Not attending them, not standing up for them when management tried to institute a cover charge for the king shows. Um, And so um, I think that what might have changed that is if everyone had involved had opted not to think about um, not to think about this in terms of kings versus queens or gay men and trans women versus lesbians and trans men. Um, if it hadn't been about a confrontation between these two cultures and which one was being valued more highly by the management. Um, But if rather everyone had been able to think about, look, we have this space that is home for all of us. It's home for all of us for different reasons, um, but it is indeed our home and a place that we want to preserve. Um, I think that making that the centerpiece of binding together in coalition could have gone a long way um, toward preserving this bar as a cultural institution 
Um, and it was, it was the center of um, a lot of queer nightlife and queer community in Cleveland for over a decade. Um, and a lot of people were devastated by the closing. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that's a, a common story, right? Um, your concluding chapter asks an important question that I've been asking myself for a while now. But you ask if drag is still queer in the context of rainbow capitalism and RuPaul's drag race. How do you answer that question? <laughs> um. Well, you see, Isabel, the whole point of framing it was as a question was so that I didn't have to answer it. Um, I'll say this. I think that drag can still be queer. Um, if we're thinking about queer in the sense of um, being open to constant change um, and in the sense of... Um, subverting or transgressing norms. Um, I think drag, some drag is absolutely still doing that. Um, and some drag is not. Uh, and the primary example that I give in the book is the impact that RuPaul's Drag Race has had on the role of drag performance in the larger culture, not just in the queer community. Um, and I think that the commercialization of drag through that show um, and through the whole cottage industry that has sprouted up around it, right? You can, you can go on a RuPaul's Drag Race cruise. There, there's a drag con every year in several different locations. Um, you can buy all sorts of merchandise with your favorite drag queen's face on it. Um, you know, I think that that has been a real boon for the folks who have benefited financially from it. Um, you know, I think it's really cool that um, this part of queer subculture is getting so much attention beyond the LGBT community. Um, and I also worry that because um, it has become a consumer product, it risks no longer having the capacity it once did um, to speak to subversive mm -hmm. queer identities and to marginalized identities. Um, because in general, the folks, with a few exceptions, but in general, the folks who do well on RuPaul's Drag Race um, are the folks who are most palatable to a heterosexual audience. Mm -hmm. yes. Thank you. Yeah, that we will still be discussing this for, for years to come, I'm sure. Uh, I'd like to um, conclude our, our talk here with uh, a few questions about books, about projects. So the first one would be, was there any particular book that inspired or informed drag interperformance and the trouble with queerness that you would like to share with us? So I think the book that was most influential for me is perhaps really unexpected. It's Karen Barad's Meeting the Universe Halfway. Um, and Barad is a feminist scientist. Uh, I believe her background is in physics. Um, and The concepts that she comes up with um, in this book, namely agential realism and interaction, um, were incredibly influential for me in arriving at this concept of interperformance. Um, I would not have come up with the entire theoretical framework of my book had I never encountered uh, Karen Barad's writing. Um, and then I also want to give a plug to uh, Jane Ward's forthcoming book, The Tragedy of Heterosexuality, which is coming out later this year. I'm so excited to read this book um, because I think it takes up um, a lot of the issues that I was working through in terms of identity um, and how people determine who counts as queer um, and why someone might choose to be queer and why someone else might insist that 
you can't choose to be queer. It's something that you're born with. Um, I think that's something um, that she's going to explore in really interesting ways in this book um, based on a conversation that I've had with her and based on reading her previous research. That sounds uh, really interesting. Hopefully we'll have her in the program soon. (laughs) And uh, while you were researching and writing this book, did you come across any story or a character or any subject that you, you know, you couldn't write about it in your book, but you wish someone else would write about? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so, we're just throwing it out there to see if the somebody, you know, goes yeah. for it. <laughs> um, well, I will say that uh, there was a chapter of my dissertation that didn't make it into the book um, and that I don't know if it will ever end up anywhere, um, but that I would love to um, see some other work on. Um, is the uh, international court system. I had a whole, well, you might've liked this, Isabel, it's a historical chapter um, on the international court system, um, which is the second largest gay service uh, organization in the world. Um, And what intrigued me about looking at the records of the international court system um, was the fact that they created it's so it's a service organization in which all of the leadership are drag performers um, and at all public appearances they're in drag. Um, but what intrigued me about it is sort of the the kinship that was created um, through this network of emperors and so-called self-declared emperors, empresses, dukes and duchesses, ladies in waiting. Um, And I'm really interested in the connection between this concept of royalty uh, and imperialism um, and drag queens. Um, And I would love to see um, someone do some work on that connection. Oh my god, I want I want to read all about that now. So <laughs> somebody please. Uh what are you working on next? What's your your current project? So my current project is another book tentatively entitled Love Under Capitalism: Soft Biopolitics in the Obama Trump Era. Uh and it could not have less to do <laughs> with drag. Um, I've gone in a totally different direction with this book. Um, but what I'm interested in in this book is um, a trend that I've noticed um, by which the state, um, both under Obama and um, under the Trump administration, um, the state sort of identifies certain demographics, um, namely white folks, straight and cis folks, um, middle and upper class folks, able-bodied folks, um, as more lovable, um, more capable of loving in normative ways, and thus more deserving of the state's love. Uh, Whereas other demographics, um, folks of color, queer folks, uh, poor and working class folks, uh, disabled folks um, are treated as incapable of loving normatively and thus as undeserving of the state's love. And I trace this trend through a number of cultural sites, um, the debates over uh, gay marriage and the ways in which uh, the push toward gay marriage was used to cast um, specifically Black folks and Native folks um, as regressively uh, anti-gay and anti-gay marriage, um, precisely at the moment when Black Lives Matter um, and the Standing Rock protests were really coming into um, the public's uh, wider attention. Um, I look at... uh, debates over immigration 
and the ways in which um, immigrants are often portrayed as bad parents um, who deserve to have their children Mm -hmm. taken away from them at the border. Um, I trace this to uh, the inauguration of Donald Trump and the way the media portrayed the um, feminized white um, uh, sanctioned women's march on Washington protests versus the disrupt J20 protests that were primarily led by queers, anarchists, folks of color. um, And that happened the day of the inauguration. Um, The former was seen as a really positive, lovable protest. um, And indeed, its slogan was love Trump's hate. Um, Whereas the latter was cast as this very violent, threatening, unlovable movement. Um, So those are some examples of the things that I'm thinking about as I work on uh, book number two. Oh, wonderful. And I I would love to read it. And I hope you come back and talk to us about it as well. Katie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke to Dr. Katie Horowitz about her book, Drag, Interperformance, and the Trouble with Queerness, which was published by Routledge in 2019. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time, I hope everybody out there is safe and healthy.